Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mano, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Good. What you got for me this week? Uh, well, I kind of had an exciting weekend this past weekend. So uh, longtime listeners of the podcast, well, actually even short-term listeners of the podcast, if you've listened to the podcast in the last couple of months, you've been hearing some advertising for the Impact Voices Conference that was... Well, depending when you're listening to it, it was going to take place in Arlington, and then it did take place in Arlington, and I got to go to part of it. So it was on a Friday evening and then an all-day Saturday. Unfortunately, I couldn't go to the Saturday event, but I was able to go to the stuff that was happening on Friday night. And so, because um, Arlington's not that far from me, I was able to drive over there and go and spend some time with uh, all the wonderful people that were putting together um, the Impact Voices Conference and then the people that attended. And so what this was, Rachel, this was a conference that was really focused on employment, you know, which was a nice um, shift for me because working in the school district, yes, transition is part of it, but my focus, the, the, the biggest thing that we face, I think, in school districts is, um, uh, at least in my neck of the woods, is teaching people about the, li- the linguistic aspects of AAC. You know, it's all about the language, right? But then once you've learned the language, once you've achieved spontaneous novel utterance generation, and you're, you're, you can use the words and use the keyboard and, and all the educational stuff, well, then what? Like, well, the, the then what is, how about getting a job right? and working? And uh, that's exactly what this conference was all about. It was all about networking together, sharing resources, sharing strategies about work and employment and life beyond just the linguistic aspect of being an AAC user. So it was a really powerful conference. Of course, um, it was put on by um, some of the organizers there, of course, were Chris Klein, uh, Lance McElmore, and then I got to meet the president of Impact Voices. Her name is Jessica Ingle, uh, and I got to meet her there. So just to tell you a little bit about it, so I, I show up, I go to the um, uh, the hotel, and they had uh, reserved a space, you know, like a, like a reception hall sort of uh, room, and they had all these crazy delicious hors d'oeuvres, and they had Impact Voices stuff, uh, stuff all over the, the place. And as I come around the corner, like I, you go and you register and you pick up your little swag bag and everything, which had awesome stuff in it. Um, I come down the hall, and there uh, there's Chris, there's Lance, there's um, Chris Saka, our friend was there. He came he came out and said hello, and with his uh, his parents were there and uh, got to meet them because we've you know we've talked to Chris on the podcast, but um, I had never met him in person, so I got to meet him in person. And then India Oaks was there, Krista Howard was there, um, gosh, so many people. Um, Kevin was there, and Kevin Williams, yes, was there, who I, again, I had never met in person, so I got to hang. But there was so many people to, to see and meet and say hello to. And let's see, Tina Moreno was there with her son. Um, and so I got to meet him and chat with him for a little bit. So the way the event ran, though, on that Friday night was like an hour-long social. And so that was great because I got to see everybody, but it wasn't really, and talk to everybody, but not 
really like in depth because you know, it was only an hour, you know, and all of a sudden it was like the hour's up. And then we rolled into what were like keynote presentations. And so Chris Klein he welcomed everybody and Lance was sort of like the MC for the, uh, our host of the evening. And then, um, and so the, then the keynotes happened, Rachel, and the keynotes were, uh, the first one was Yu Sun Chun, who is a, um, uh, AAC user from George Mason University. I might be saying her last name wrong, so I apologize, Yusun, if you're listening to this. Who, again, she's from George Mason University. I was to say she works at George Mason University, which is also in my backyard, right? And we have known each other for years, like known of each other, but I've never met each other face to face. And we, um, so we got to meet and talk just briefly, like before she got up and did the keynote, all about her experiences, um, India Oaks got up and she talked and told about her experiences. So it was really great to listen to. And I, again, it was a nice reframing. You know, I, I sent you a Marco Polo. Uh, in fact, I mar- you and I Marco Poloed with um, uh, Chris Saka just to say hello. And then um, uh, I sent you a Marco Polo, you know, reflecting afterwards, thinking like, yeah, right. I'm so focused on the linguistic aspects, like the, the transition transition piece and employment piece, stuff we've definitely talked about over the years on the podcast, but it, it was it was really great to to hyper focus on on networking and making uh, connections with with people, and um, so yeah, it was just a really great event. Uh, what we're planning on, Rachel, just so so you and all the listeners know, is there's emails going back and forth right now. Um, between myself and the organizers of Impact Voices to have sort of a a reflection episode. Like, come on, come on here and talk about what the experience was like on Saturday, uh, well, Friday and Saturday, reflect on the whole thing, what they'd like to do differently, what they'd um, what they hope for for the the future of the of the organization and the and the conference. Um, So be looking forward to that as a as a future episode. Chris, I had so much FOMO when you sent me a Marco Polo with Chris Saka that I wasn't there. I was just like, oh man, like I would love to be at that same place, same time and meeting all those wonderful people. We've had so many of those amazing people on the podcast, but I haven't met a lot of them in real life. Um, so it sounds like it was a really amazing event. And I also love the idea of a event that really focuses on, you know, adult AAC users and employment, because, you know, we know that that is something children who are AAC users become adults who are AAC users. Um, in fact, for AAC awareness month, Mike Hipple, um, who's been on the podcast, uh, I asked a lot of AAC users to share their insight about AAC. What's one thing people should think about. And he said that he said, you know, the AAC user that's 16 becomes 26, becomes 36, you know, and so on and so forth. And we're focused so often on pediatrics and children um, that we, you know, really need to also consider adulthood and what that looks like. Um, and I thought that was just a really perfect reminder. And I feel like that kind of ties in with what we're talking about here. Um, so I just think that it's really important to think about that and, you know, really set our students up for success long term um, and thinking about things like employment and how we can prepare our students for employment, I think is really important. Uh, one of the other, uh, I think, things that came out of this, just this, this Friday night, but of course, there, this is not a new idea, what I'm about to say here, is the idea of, yes, working with the, uh, the, the individual AAC user, working with their family, but then the other aspect, which is working with the community at large to 
better understand how to support an AAC user. So what a, a job interview, or what to do, how to be a better communication partner, what you could do as a business owner to seek out uh, employment uh, and seek out like employing somebody who uses an AAC device or just your um, uh, branding your company with with uh, your employees sort of understanding uh, how to interact with someone who uses an AAC device so maybe some sort of training to your employee employees about that um, are all different ways that you can also if you can't immediately hire somebody you could maybe do some education with the in your neck of the woods about how to become a better uh, communication partner when you do meet somebody who uses an AAC device. Yeah. And I think that oftentimes, you know, just simply having them come talk about their experience, uh, I think can be really useful. And, you know, we talk all the time, Chris, about how sometimes it's hard, especially for parents who have never kind of seen or met an AAC user and their child's just starting off on that journey. Seeing what that actually looks like can be really inspiring and can be really like a great thing to see. Um, you know, if you see your student who's just like, or your child who, you know, isn't really using it yet. Um, I think that there's, there's a power in, you know, listening to AAC users, seeing them on their AAC, you know, generating, you know, snug. Right. Um, and so I think it's such a, a great thing. And I think we can hire AAC users. I know a lot of the AAC users that have been on our podcast also do speaking events. And so that feels like a really easy way to make an impact in the organization that you're in and um, also, you know, help help with the employment piece. Um, I think that, and I can't remember who I was talking to about this. I think it was ATIA. It was an AAC user. And, you know, oftentimes we're, you know, asking AAC users to provide their insight, but we're not paying them. Um, and I think that that is problematic, right? Um, so I think that, you know, thinking about speaking events and things like that can be a really great way to hear their voices, but also, you know, pay them for their amazing experience and their time. Something else I learned during the keynotes and during the sort of um, st structured portion of the Friday night event was that Chris Klein and Lance McElmore um, only met each other like four or five years ago. Um, and one of the other sort of aspects of Impact Voices that they are that they are working towards a goal of theirs is to help AAC users connect with each other. They were saying that um, sometimes if you're an AAC user, you can be kind of isolated or lonely and not necessarily connect with anyone else who uses AAC. And so they were like, this is what our organization can help make these connections, make these um, professional connections. So you can say, well, what worked for you? Um, might work for me. Uh, in fact, just this morning, actually, I was re-listening to our Hank Poor episode, and um, and he was talking about employment, and and it was like he has like a bunch of different jobs. So there's a perfect example of like, well, I want to have jobs like you have jobs. What strategies did you use in the in a way that people can mentor each other? Yeah, I love that. I think that. Finding a community is so important for everyone. Uh, we've talked about that on the podcast too, with parents finding that community um, when they get a you know a diagnosis and they don't really know where to go. And once you have that community in place, life doesn't feel so hard, right? You have the ability to share your experiences and realize that we all have similar experiences. Um, so I think that that is a huge element to impact voices that I really love. So if you have not. Um 
heard about this organization, you can check it out, check it out over at impactvoices.org. And with all that said, Rachel, let's talk about our interview today. She has been a longtime supporter. She's a Patreon member, and we were super excited to talk to her finally on the podcast. She took some time, and we had an amazing conversation. Super excited to share it with you guys. Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with... Rachel Mayle. And Rachel, you and I are doing an interview with Cherie, uh, Dr. Cherie Dodge-Chin. Cherie, am I saying your name right? Yes, you are. Cherie, it rhymes with Marie. <laughs> well, welcome to the pod- podcast, Cherie. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I've been such a big fan for a really long time. Well, thank you. I know we've had um, multiple times we've corresponded through, uh, I don't know, different channels. I don't even remember all the different ways. And I know I follow you on Instagram. So I've been seeing a lot of the posts on Instagram and kind of the, the fun energy and vibe that you bring. But let's start off with um, who you are and what you do. Okay. My name is Cherie and um, this is the beginning, uh, sort of the beginning of my 22nd year as a speech pathologist um, and educator. This is also my second year working as the AT consultant for my public school district in Portland, Oregon. And um, I have been in public education almost the entire time. I actually started my career as a high school science teacher. So I've always been somehow involved in education and then eventually working with kids with communication needs. Excellent. Excellent. So a little side note, I'm working out trying to um, go to Oregon. I got to say this right because sometimes I Yes, you do because don't say it wrong. (laughs) <laughs> I know that's a thing. Um, in fact, our producer uh, for the podcast sent me a text today saying, Chris, in a past podcast episode, you said the state wrong. So it's Oregon. Oregon? That's right. Got Oregon. Yeah. Oregon. Um, so it looks like I might be going to Oregon in April. So maybe I'll get to see you in person. Yes, maybe. <laughs> I'll be I'll be here. <laughs> um, so let's talk. What uh, what should we talk about today? I know that um, you have done some research and you had some feedback from other episodes we've talked about. So where do you want to start? What should we talk about first? Um, I would love to talk a little bit about my research because I'm going to be doing a spinoff of it in my next research, probably next year. Um, and so, yeah, I think maybe that's a great place to start. Okay. So let me just, uh, now tell me if I have this right. You did some research around the rap strategy and reading strategies. Am I thinking of that right? That's exactly right. It was around rap, um, which was from, um, Kent Walsh originally back when she was doing her dissertation. And then, um, several others have worked with her in the last couple of decades to expand on that research, but it's gone ra read, ask, answer, um, and rap read, ask, answer prompt, um, are the two different acronyms that have been used within that methodology. Excellent. So uh, for people that don't know, let's get into it. Let's find out what your research is all about, what RAP stands for. I mean, you just 
said what it is, but like maybe describe what that is. Cause really it's about shared reading. That's what your research was really about. That one, there's, that's one particular strategy that is used to, um, to, to maybe try and teach parents how to become better at shared reading. Um, and then maybe from there improve the language abilities of students, but uh, enough of me talking about it. Let's hear you talk about it since you did the research. <laughs> Well, the RAP and the RAP strategies are really built around um, communication partner skills and strategies. And then they're using reading as how they want to work around those skills. So the a lot of the training is not just around the reading and the shared reading, it's about how to be a really good communication partner. So using things like um, waiting and waiting for five or more seconds and um, modeling on the AAC device in question. In my research, I did light tech communication boards, but a lot of the research out there has used high tech um, communication as well. And then expanding on anything that the child says or any way that they communicate in order to try to make that a little bit longer, or a little bit more complex. And it's done within the context of a very specific set of storybooks, which were in my case, I did the Little Critter storybooks because some of the other research had used those as well. But there is some variation that some other researchers have used some uh, different storybooks over time. But that way you make sure that all the reading is done at approximately the same level, the same type of vocabulary, but you're not doing the exact same book every time. So I had like a set of five books. I remember some of that original research was like uh, Dora the Explorer books, I think, yes. right? <laughs> yes, one of the one of the variations did use Dora the Explorer. Mm -hmm. And um, the if I remember correctly too, and I it's the 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 AEC that was used was often um, uh, created for the experience rather than a, let's say a, a custom out of the box sort of app or core board, meaning they created a board for the Dora book or for the, for in your, in your case, little critters book. Did you do that? Or did you use um, out of the box sort of application? Well, so I did a little of both. Basically, um, the past research, especially the ones that were done on high tech, a lot of them just used, created a, a separate page that they were gonna be using specifically for that book. And so it would have the fringe and the core vocabulary on just one page. What I did is I took a core board that I had created and was using within the school environment, and I added custom fringe to the core board for each story. So each story had a separate board, but they all had the same core on the bottom. So it was like, I can't remember. I think I used like 24 core words on each of them and then like 10 fringe words for each of the stories. Mm -hmm. no, but again, this was not yeah. something that had ever been this. The kids had never seen these core boards before. They were they were novel core boards to the to the kids. Which, again, let me just speculate here. The reason you might do this is because you're trying to eliminate variables, right? So if someone has got a lot of experience around a particular thing, then maybe that would skew the data, where if you're all using the same core board, that's sort of novel, you're all using the same books, what we're really getting at is what we're trying to measure is, is trying to isolate a, a variable. Is that fair? 
That would be the um, answer I wish I could give. It more had to do with the fact that I was doing this in the midst of a pandemic and I could only use what I had available and I was able to send laminated core boards to families around the state. Um, some of my families, this was the beginning of the pandemic, so some of my families actually took what I sent them because I sent them all the books and the boards and they kept them in their garage for a week and didn't touch them. You know how at the beginning we didn't know if we could trust touching our mail and totally. And things like that. So, um, so we were we were going with what we what we had and what we had available. And also, none of the kids had any high tech systems, so it wasn't like I could use a high tech system that they already owned because I don't believe any of my subjects actually even had a system. Okay, well let's 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 dig in here. What were you trying to figure out? So I wanted to figure out if this could be done effectively online. Uh, my original proposal for my research was nothing. It was the reading, but I was going to be working directly with the kids. Um, and then the pandemic hit and I had to scrap my every initial, my lit review, my methods. I had to scrap it all and uh, come up with a new plan. And so my new plan was how can I train caregivers online to use these strategies? So the main thing I was measuring was the caregiver's use of the strategies, uh, not specifically whether or not the kids were making any progress. Right, right. Just could we, could the caregiver learn the strategy and become better at implementing the strategy, not was the student making progress in any sort of way? Right, there? exactly. And we were doing it all online. And most of the previous research had done a combination of online and in person or all in person. So that was the thing that made this unique. And it was mostly out of necessity because it was, you know, the summer of 2020. So a couple things here. Can I just make some comments? So this, uh, the first thing is shared reading um, is one of those experiences that um, I have to remind myself people don't know how to do. Meaning um, I grew up, I was the, in my family when I was a little kid, when there was little Chris, I was the oldest cousin and I just grew up with kids and I sort of had lots of drops in the bucket of learning how to be with kids and how to read books to kids. Like if I tried to read um, in a certain way, maybe it didn't work. Or if I picked a book that was too high level or something, it didn't work and I have to make adaptations. And over the time I learned, but I, there are certain parents um, that, and then of course I studied language development and became a speech therapist and all these things. Right. Um, and then I talked to like some of my friends who have kids and they're uh, in the medical field and don't have the same drops in the bucket that I do. They were the youngest sibling and didn't actually get practice to read with all their cousins or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, didn't have the same opportunities that I did. And I realized that it's a skill that I learned over time. It wasn't one that I was born with. Um, that uh, there's certain books that people would pick out and be like, and then I'd, I'd listen to them talk about like, yeah, my my two-year-old just won't sit for the Lord of the Rings like I thought they would. It's like, well, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe that's not the book, you know, that you pick. Uh, maybe there's some other ways. Yeah, I'm trying to get them to sit for more than a few minutes and they just always want to squirm onto my lap and move. And it's like, okay, well, maybe there's some ways you can entice them. So I just realized that, um, I've come to realize over the time that becoming an effective share reader, uh, being someone who knows how to read to children and being a shared communication partner is something that takes practice and skill. And that seems to be what you were studying. 
Yeah, and one of the things that I notice a lot is not just with kids who use AAC, but just in general, I see a lot of parents, a lot, a lot of parents who will use shared reading, shared, I put shared in quotes here, um, as a time to test their kids. Kids, So they're constantly like, where's the bird? Where's the plane? Where's the car? And some kids dig that and they love being right and they love like pointing to things. But a lot of our kids, especially our kids who have these complex communication needs, Reading's not fun if they feel like they're being put on the spot the whole time. So that was one area I definitely uh, want to improve upon because a lot of my families did indeed ask those types of questions during the wrap, during the read, ask, answer. They asked a lot of that and that was something that I noticed um, that parents were continuing to do even when they were using some of the other strategies effectively. Do you think, like, again, this is just speculating here because I'm, and I'm intentionally teasing out the results and how the, your methodology and, and results, but, but uh, to, to keep people baited on the hook listening, Rachel, right? <laughs> but We're, it's all a think, trick. <laughs> do you think some of that is because the parents knew they were being part of a study and they were watching you and it's sort of performative in the same way that um, people might like, uh, they might, bring their children to family, a family outing and they see grandma and they go, oh, tell grandma about so-and-so. And they like ask them a bunch of questions so that they can perform in front of grandma. Um, same sort of thing. Like we want to impress the, the speech therapist doing the thing. So I'm going to ask these questions. Do you think that's a part of it? Or do you think they do it anyway? Like if there was no camera and there wasn't there, they're still like asking a lot of questions at a triangle. Show me the triangle, show me the triangle, you know? Um, so... They were, so what you're describing is called the Hawthorne effect, and it's something that we have to take into account when we're doing research because it's very, very real, right? Like the, the way that we help to um, make that a little less prevalent is that during all the baseline sessions before I introduced what this new technique was going to be, we also were, were seeing if they were using some of those strategies before and after to see if that changed. But I made a mistake when I was making my core boards. I know that it's important to be able to ask and um, allow students to use question words. So I had three question words on my core boards and they were who, what, and where. So of course, when parents were told, as you're reading through the book, you need to ask one question for every page. They were asking a who, what, or where, which was very frequently a where is the blank type of question. So I made a mistake in that I put that on the core board and also that I didn't provide very explicit instruction not to do that and to make it more open-ended questions. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, I absolutely agree with you that one of the challenges with shared reading and coaching someone on shared reading is that it just becomes a test about like what you can demonstrate, what you can say, you know, or communicate. And so, and I think this is a challenge across the board, you know, not just with shared reading, but just across the board, communication partners are, you know, asking a lot of questions. They're not providing a lot of just like commenting and things like that. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what, how did you help as this process was going along, um, you know, with the communication partner training that you did, um, you know, what types of supports and strategies and things along the way were you able to share that helped kind of 
become less of a test and more of an actual interaction and shared reading? So I couldn't, unfortunately, during that research, help them um, in that way. Once I had presented the intervention, I couldn't change things up and provide more um, coaching in that particular way. The coaching that I did provide was really, what questions do you have? And then I could answer their, their questions for that. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I really learned through the process was that parents are very naturally going to go towards those, you know, the who, what, and where questions and the, the quizzing of the students. So after this was all done, I ended up finding and putting together all of the research-based communication partner strategies that we commonly use with children, especially young children, and designing an acronym that I teach to my staff for communication partner strategies. These are not specifically for reading, they're just for in general. And then the next research that I do in a year or two um, will incorporate this acronym as well as um, the teachers in this case are implementing the, the shared reading techniques. So the acronym is the WISE acronym. So W is for wait with an expectant pause for five or more seconds. I is for invite, invite your communication partner to be part of your communication exchange without necessarily quizzing them and making them participate. S, unfortunately, is for show. Um, it's just how it worked out. And that is how I got in the modeling using the AAC system that the child either has or you're wanting them to learn. And then the E is for expand their communication to be a little bit longer, a little bit more complex, um, or just to interpret what you think maybe they were trying to say by giving it words and then showing it on their communication system. So that is what I kind of developed out of the research that I did and I've been using with my staff and the teachers that I work with now. I love it. Didn't just ask a question there? You said, unfortunately, with the word show, what do you, what do you mean by that? I just, I just hate when uh, the letter S is for an SH word because they are different phonemes. Oh, gotcha. It's a SLP, SLP problems. Yes. <laughs> I'm one of those people that like people would tease me and they'd be like, P is for pterodactyl, you know, and I'd be like, no. <laughs> That's great. I, well, I love that. I mean, certainly those are all great strategies. Um, and it's nice and short and simple and easy for a parent to wrap their brain around and, and learn from and then learn to implement and use. So, um, well done. That sounds great. I mean, is it something that we can use and replicate? Um, yes, I don't have a super developed method for replicating it yet, but I do, um, like I've created workbooks for educators and families, and I talk about the whys and how they can do it and then have them come up with examples of how this might help their child. And one of the things that I've noticed when I'm working with school staff and I present this to them and then I ask them, like, which one do you think is going to help? you know, little Johnny the most, and I have them think of like one specific student. And um, a lot of times it's the very first one, it's the wait. They're like, I totally could see that if I gave that kid more time to process what I said, they'd actually have something back, you know, to say back to me instead of me just, you know, moving on through and, and not giving them any opportunities. We, uh, we do a thing in our presentations where we'll, when we're talking about waiting or, or stopping or just giving wait time, we'll just be like. It's really awkward. 
<laughs> but everyone listen everyone listening to the podcast just wondered if everything just stopped right now they're checking their dials like they're doing something right and then eventually someone will fill in that that time so i'm the queen of waiting in in some ways i'm very good at i'm okay with that that pause as long as i know it's intentional so i tried using that this summer i was teaching a graduate level course to um some future special education teachers and i they were not participating it was an online class where you know people were kind of checked out it was summertime and i tried using the expectant pause and I was like, okay, who wants to tell us blank? And I just sat there and you know what? None of them filled in the blank. And I probably waited 15 seconds. Wow. So it doesn't always work, but you know, it can be effective. They probably thought you froze on Zoom. Like she's frozen. <laughs> well, okay. So let's go back to your research. So what, um, what did you find with the parents that, um, that you know about so, improving their 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 skills yes yeah, so the previous training that had been done took place over multiple sessions and added up to like between an hour and a half and four hours of training for families and what i found was that in i could train them in one hour um, online, just them and me, and we didn't have to pull anyone else in. And their ability to use the strategies went from zero, because everyone was at zero in our baseline, up to 70% on their very first session or more, and then up to 90 to 100 right after that. So it was very fast uh, progress. And what was great was that it showed that we don't I mean, it's great to have families come in and be in person, but we don't need to in order to provide them with this training. And we also don't need a huge amount of time. You know, one hour was extremely effective. And I wonder, and I put this as one of my questions at the end of the research, if even less time might have been effective. I don't know. I didn't try less time, but um, I know that one hour was already less than what the previous studies had shown. For sure. So what did you do in that hour? Did you follow a protocol of some sort? Yeah, I created a protocol and a slideshow and, and things like that. And what I was doing was I was using some adult um, learning strategies to try to engage the parents. So I was talking about what we're doing, why we're doing it, how it's effective. And then we spent time role playing. And then finally, we spent time with reflection. Like, what do you think is going to be hard about this for you? What do you think is going to be easy? Where could you envision doing this through your day. So these are all different strategies that a lot of different adult learning says are effective for adults, which is not the same as effective for kids. You know, kids can't always reflect, but adults can make really good progress doing that. Well, again, this sounds similar that there was a, a protocol called the impact model, still a protocol. We certainly used it in our neck of the woods. That's sort of it, is similar. I was using the impact. So the impact was part of Kent Walsh's um, Kent Walsh's, uh, her baby, her, <laughs> um, her and Binger and, and some other researchers where you're, mm -hmm. we're doing that McNaughton. as part of the wrap. Yep. Yeah. So, and, but what your really, what, what your big outcome is, if I'm understanding correctly, is that you learned it faster, maybe, right? And they, that research that was done in the past was done in person and you were doing this online. Right. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. And I was using well, light tech when, and I don't think any of the other studies were using only light tech. They were using either a combination of light and high, or they were using high. They were mostly using what the students already had in their possession and were familiar with. Okay. Um, 
Well, this is something that we certainly saw in practice. And I remember the highs and lows of this uh, and where I am in the roller coaster ride right now is a little bit down. So maybe you can cheer me up because um, I, Rachel and I, Rachel has been doing this prior to the pandemic, um, working with parents and teaching them these strategies. And then uh, the pandemic hits, we go to emergency distance learning. And I remember this is a high. I'm I'm super I, I'm super excited right now. I, I I know the pandemic is a scary time for everybody, and we're emergency distance learning, and everyone's secluding in their homes. But Chris in his closet is like, this is it. This is the moment. We can now move to parents learning these strategies rather than only teachers, or in some cases, some students. We can on mass. We'll be teaching the students how to do this. And Rachel and I did presentations all over the place, sharing the uh, in, in my local neck of the woods, and then in in farther reaches about like so many people were um, holding their heads going, how are we going to do therapy online? And we're like, you're going to teach the parents. right? And there was this, this big eye opening, like, yeah, wait, that's what we'll do. And then certainly throughout the course of the year or so or more where people were staying at home, um, we saw this uptick. We certainly had uh, anecdotal evidence, people saying, yes, oh my gosh, the community. And I, when I ask people now and reflect back on it, people go, Oh yeah, the communication that we had with parents was one of the big bright spots of the of the pandemic. We certainly saw their skills go up. They had an appreciation for what we do more. Um, there was all this great communication that happened. And now this is where I'm. <laughs> so you can see my energy and my excitement talking about that because I really thought this was going to be a turning point. And maybe it was for some people, but it feels like we're in this backslide right now of of yeah, okay, we can get back to in person learning, and now we're gonna get back to the old way it was like but the old way it was wasn't working that great can we do this this can we keep doing this because this is working for a lot of people and now we have research that supports it <laughs> your research <laughs> yeah so um i don't know if i can be much of a um cheer you up here so much um, because where I work, the population that I work with is um, a lot of families that do not speak English. So we have a lot of barriers to um, parent communication training. Um, and when we can get interpreters in, it's usually like a one-time thing. It's not a, like a multiple time thing or just communicating with them to get them to come in at all. So what was really different about the research I did was they were self-selecting. You know, they I put out the call and they approached me as opposed to in school where I'm going to families going, please let me help you get this because I think it's really gonna make a huge impact on your students' communication. And some of them are, like, yes, I totally get it. But a lot of families are like, no, I understand them just fine. I know what they want. I know what they need. Um, so parent buy-in within my school district is definitely not as high as it is when you have parents that are approaching you for a service. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's certainly something we've explored. Oh, please, Rachel, go ahead. I was just going to say, I completely relate to that. When people come to me, they're like, I'm bought in, I'm ready. I know what you do. I know how you do it. And it's just like, I feel like it's really like on a silver platter for me um, as far as getting parent buy-in at this point. Um, and so I completely can relate to that struggle. That's not the reality of the situations most SLPs are in, you know, in schools, private practices, you name it. It's like that 
buy-in piece is really hard to get. Um, and so I feel like, you know, that totally resonated with me. I was like, I get it. Like when people are like seeking you out, it's easy to just be like, let me teach you some strategies. They're super receptive to learning. They have lots of, you know, you know, motivation to learn. And so it's a totally different, different ball game um, when you don't have that buy-in and trying to get that in the initial stages. Yeah. And sometimes I have buy-in. I've had a few parents that are like, this is amazing, but we have so many barriers like transportation barriers. They can't come into the school or um, internet connectivity issues. They can't get really good, you know, internet or they're working all day. And so they can't meet during the daytime. So because I very rarely see parents, we definitely have a lot of issues with communication that way, which is something that I'm still, you know, working on trying to figure out as are many other people, you know, the whole school system's trying to figure out how can we build more rapport with families, especially some of the families that um, are in districts like mine that, you know, might be coming from some pretty hard backgrounds. Mm-hmm. That's certainly a focus in our neck of the woods is community engagement, community involvement, and how we can communicate in a streamlined fashion, in an accessible fashion, and get more um, uh, involvement uh, t- together. Would you also say maybe that a, a barrier to this is the structure itself of speech therapy, like that it is meant to be uh, traditionally it's a direct therapy model with the individual? Is that is that how it is in your neck of the woods? Uh, that is, for the most part, how it is. We're starting to move more to a consultation model within my school district, especially for our kiddos who are in classrooms that are primarily Um, a special ed classroom, like they're spending the majority of their day within this one type of special ed classroom. So we're moving to more of a consult, but we have a lot of mixed feelings about that. You know, we have some teachers that are very much like, this is awesome. I can totally do this. And then we have other teachers who are very much like, I didn't get my degree in speech pathology. I can't do this. Um, And so, and then the speech paths themselves have very mixed feelings as well. Like, I don't know how to work with adults. I don't know how to work with adults who don't want me there. Um, And, but I definitely have felt over the years, the silo effect of pulling kids out of their classroom to work with them just, you know, for 30 minutes in the speech room, because especially on anything language related, because then the teachers can't carry it over. And it really is not a skill that's going to be applicable to their school life, which is the whole reason that we have an IEP is how can they access their education and they can't access their education if they're learning vocab words in the little speech room that they never use again later in the day. Yeah, they're not generalizing those skills that they're practicing. So uh, what's the real point? They can do a skill in a place that nobody ever sees them do the skill and they don't really use it in their life. So so the idea is to um, maybe move into a, a, a more inclusive setting so, and get more people to be, especially in the AAC world, modelers, right? People who are teaching them language and showing them language and using the words on their device and that, those sorts of strategies that we know are all good strategies. Right. You know, ideally it would be all their communication partners throughout the day. So if there's educational assistants that work with them, they're using it. If they go to PE, then the PE teacher knows how to use it. And I see that with some of the staff I work with. There are certain staff in all of those areas that are totally bought in. You know, we have this one music teacher who's just like, I'm all over this. And she's using, you know, the core board and, and she's, she's all over it. And, and that's amazing. Um, but it's, 
doesn't apply to everyone. And of course, lack of staff training is the time. Lack of time for staff training is just such a huge barrier. We have like 15 minutes a week in which we could potentially do staff training with the like educational assistants and the the school you know the principals will typically take that time because there's some building wide level that they need to know about and then you're like okay well maybe we'll schedule this next may well sherry here's an idea because we have some research now that shows that we could teach okay these are parents that you did the research with but i wonder if we could teach fifth graders to do the uh, the rap strategy in less than an hour we could teach them how to do it and then they could go work in the preschool classrooms or the first grade classrooms or the second grade classroom so something I did last year that was really amazing is I had this one student who was in the, the transition program. She was 21 years old and about to age out. And um, I had her go in and work with one of my third grade students who had a AAC device and they both had AAC devices. So they were like playing Barbies and, and things like that. But the 21 year old who was totally bought into AAC because that was her primary method of communicating was modeling for the third grader like look how awesome this is and look how well I can do with this and let you know what I want and need so that was really a really fun experience and unfortunately that that uh, young woman graduated so I can't use her again for this year but I'm already on the lookout for a new young adult who can come in and as one of her work experiences because they do this for work experience um, can work with some other students that are in classrooms where they're the only AAC user because I think a lot of the issue when you do have a student who's the only AAC user in their entire class is feeling like this is different I don't want to you know I do want to look like my friends my friends don't have this what can I do to to look more like them so I have been slowly working my way into creating more AAC affirming classrooms. I also wonder if that experience was really powerful for the teachers and the paraprofessionals in that classroom to see a 21 year old AAC user, you know, cause I feel like oftentimes when we're working and with emergent communicators using AAC, we don't know what that looks like to be able to generate language and have literacy skills and all these things. And so I'm sure it was just as impactful for the student AAC user as it was for all the adults in that classroom to see like, wow, like, look at this girl, like she's got it. Like that's what we're working towards. Yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing to see. And, and the 21 year old wasn't even the most fluent AAC user. She, you know, she was like a one to two word utterances typically, but it's still, she was proud of her. You know, she would take her device everywhere. She was really proud of it. And that was skills that we were working on with the younger student who felt like, I don't need this, you know, I'm fine. Even though verbal communication is just not how she's gonna be able to meet her communication needs at this time. Mm. So you had mentioned that you were doing some new research. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, it hasn't quite been determined, but I have entered a second doctorate program and I have to do another dissertation. So, <laughs> so I have to come up with some new research. So what I think I'm going to do is something similar to before where it'll be something around shared reading, but it'll be with special ed teachers. And I'm going to incorporate things like um, the wise communication strategies 
within book reading. Uh, so I might veer away. I'll still use like an impact type framework for teaching the teachers, but I will uh, veer away from the read, ask, answer prompt and do more, a little more fluid and open-ended with wise strategies during the book reading experience. I'm not sure yet if it'll be, I'm, I'm actually thinking it's gonna be whole group. So when the teacher like in a room that's a primarily a special ed room is leading whole group shared reading, I wanna see if I can make an impact on how often they use those communication partner skills. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent, we can't wait to read this and see how it goes and hear your feedback about how, the, uh, how it all plays out. Um, can I ask you another question? Sure. So you had mentioned that you are also doing assistive technology. So can you tell us a little bit about how you balance that time and how that works? Well, so the AAC portion of my job, I've got pretty much down. I've been doing it for 20 years. I, you know, started in year two. Um, and um, actually that's its own interesting story, but the assistive tech for reading, writing and access is still very new to me. And so I'm relying on a lot of help right now. Um, I'm getting help from the um, OTs and PTs that I work with. We're all in the same main building. Um, and then there's a regional center that they will help me. And then the woman who had my job before me is amazing. And she like is still my mentor. And so she's still helping me with all of that stuff as well. So that's definitely, we're on the warning curve there. Do you, just to me, there's, I think there's a number of people that listen to this podcast that wear these multiple hats and some people do it like you're the speech therapist or you're the OT. And by the way, you also do this on the side or do you, is it, is there a strict division of labor here where it's like, you no, know, two days a week, you do this and three days, three days a week, you do this. And you actually get like, that's part of the job. You know what I mean? Not, not at other duties as assigned. <laughs> right. So my job is AT slash AAC five days a week. Um, and what we've kind of done in the district is that the, AT consultant is the one who's going to provide the tools and provide the training and occasionally work with the kids, but mostly it's really just consulting with the, the teachers and the therapists. However, like when I was in my role, I was at an elementary school for 19 years. And when I was there, the AT consultant knew that I could handle everything except procuring the equipment. So she didn't you know, she was like, okay, Sheree, he, you know, here's the equipment, go for it. Whereas other school buildings, the speech paths or the self-contained teachers might not feel as confident. And so then she provided a lot more of the actual hands-on training. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, with doing this for so long, what kind of changes have you seen over 20 years? Um, well, you know, the big thing when I was early on was uh, the, the big old clunky Dynavox, um, and not many people had that, and it was all folder-based, and I remember that very clearly, and it was huge. Um, I worked with this one young woman who had one uh, mounted to her wheelchair, and it was probably weighed 50 pounds. Um, so what a huge difference, and there wasn't a lot of choices, right? I mean, like, that was kind of it. If you wanted high tech, there was very few things to choose from. Um, when I first, the reason I first got into AAC is because when I graduated uh, over 20 years ago, I ended up in a school, even though I meant to end up with adults, um, 
but there was no openings at the time. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll just take a job in the schools. So I took a job in the schools in one of the classrooms I was working with, um, all of the students had very complex bodies, very complex. And they were all using switches just to like turn on and off things and um, some vocas to be like, hi, how are you? Um, and that was it. And I, and I had no, I had never heard of this. There was no class on this when I was in graduate school, like in the nineties, like I, and maybe there was in some places, but certainly not where I was. And so I got into this room and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this? And what am I supposed to do? Um, and so I did some research and found a fellowship in Oregon. And after spending six months at that first job, I moved across the country and, and, and did a, mostly unpaid fellowship, really just focusing on AAC for um, the rest of my clinical fellowship year. Amazing. Amazing. I think if you're listening to this now and you go, oh, that what uh, Cherie just described is exactly how some of the classrooms still are here in, in the 2022-2023, then maybe it's like that could be a wake-up call, right? Like maybe those aren't the exact same tools we should have been using for, for 20 years. Is that fair? That's very fair. You know, and at the time I was like, what else is there? And then when I uh, moved and, and did the fellowship, I was like, there is more, but there's not a ton. And then over time, there was just more and more and more. And now there's just so much out there that I want to tell people. I'm like, no, stop. There's too many choices. Narrow it down. We can't specialize in everything. Um, so one of the things that I have done is um, gone through and decided that most of the kids in our district are using uh, WordPower 60. And so I ended up converting our core boards that we use throughout the district to WordPower 60. So now all the classrooms and all the schools have access to lanyards and boards and posters that all look just like that home screen of that WordPower 60. And we don't have a ton of iPads for students use yet, but that's the very first thing that I try with them if we go to high tech, because it's what I'm getting all the children and um, adults used to over time. Yes, and the motor plans can be the same. That sounds like the specific language system first approach or a version yep. of it. <laughs> we love that you're not using random core boards. <laughs> that's a, a thing that we, yeah we really appreciate is like having a system that we know kids will transition to. We know we might have to start with light tech AAC, but knowing that we're supporting motor planning when we do make that switch, um, you know, is really important. Well, my favorite thing about it though is, and, and we were doing this before with just a different um, set of core is that as long as the kid stays in the district, they're going to see the same thing from grade to grade to grade, you know, cause we do have a lot of movement in and out of the district, but we also have a lot of kids that are there from age five up until age 21. And we want them to have uh, be seen the same thing every day, every year as they transition between school buildings, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, and that maybe that would hold true to the staff too, that that move or trans transfer from one school to another or shift grade levels or whatever, the more you can keep that consistent, uh, the more everybody knows where the words are and can model on it and understand yeah, what they're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So it seems like uh, it's been working for you. You get some, I mean, you seem like you might, do you have any data to, to back that up or is it just a few? I don't have any data. I don't, the first year, you know, the teachers, because we were transitioning from a similar but different system, um, 
some of the teachers were not so into it, uh, but they understood the justification. You know, I went through and I was like, here's why we're doing this. And every single one was like, I get why it's just hard to change. And yeah. I'm like, okay, I get it. I agree. <laughs> um, but now we're on year two of using this particular system and uh, I haven't had any pushback yet. Cross fingers, mm -hmm. not good. Excellent. Well, okay, Rachel and I have different final questions to ask you. All right, so my question is, my final question is related to, and maybe you've touched on it already, maybe not, is what's your sort of questing after? What's your, what are you kind of wondering about? What do you want to learn more about or you're curious about? What's, uh, what's fueling your fire to learn more about? I am always on the lookout for more efficient like organizational systems and and you know getting things my my ducks in a row and figuring out how to do things quickly um so that's something that i'm always really trying to figure out um i also as i've started this this new doctorate program i didn't realize how interested i would be in some of the educational things that i'm learning about like i had a class in educational policy and i was like ah, educational policy but it was actually really fascinating i'm not going to go into politics but but learning you know i ended up doing my my final signature paper on idea and i learned so many things that I had, you know, the lawyers talk about it and I know it's in the IEPs, but I didn't know where it had come from and, and why it had um, started that way. So I can't tell you exactly what in, in the educational field I'm super interested in, but just learning more about the field of public education has been has been more interesting than I expected. Well, just related to that, I'll say my wife is getting her doctorate in uh, educational leadership and same thing. Like she'll mention, like, I had no idea. Like I knew these things existed. I learned about them when I was in, you know, undergrad, grad school and learning about, you know, in, in college, you take those classes. Um, but some of the stories behind them and some of the ways that they uh, have been argued over the years, I mean, those sorts of things are fascinating. That becomes our dinner time conversation, you know? <laughs> it's like other people go out and talk about their kids and here we are talking about like educational law and where it came from. Yeah, well, like IDEA came from originally Brown versus the Board of Education. Like the reason we have IDEA is because of civil rights legislature. Like. I would have never, that would have never occurred to me until I started, you know, digging into it and being like, yeah, wait, no, now I see it. So okay. one question I love to ask people who come on the podcast, if you had a billboard that everyone could see, what would your billboard say? I think that I, off the top of my head, would use the, I, I love the phrase, everyone deserves a voice. So it would probably be something along those lines. That's the reason that we do what we do, right? Is because like we're working with populations of individuals that don't have access. And so it's like we're trying to provide that access and then provide all the support around an individual to learn how to communicate and connect with the world the same way, you know, we all have the luxury of doing. So love that. Love that, Sheree. Speaking of connecting, give us all the stuff. Where can people find you and follow you and learn more about you and look into your research? Where where can they go to connect? 
So they can go to Superpower Speech, all the Superpower Speech. I've been blogging since 2008. I have like 700 blog posts. Um, I've got an Instagram account. I've got a Facebook account. I don't do Twitter. Don't look for me there. Uh, but just about everywhere else, you can contact me or find me or on Teachers Pay Teachers. Also, Superpower Speech, all the places. Superpower Speech. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for spending your time here with us. Thank you for being such a fan of the podcast and keeping the conversation going, like reaching out to us. I know that uh, um, it, it really helps us formulate new episodes and gives us stuff to talk about and think about and stretch our own, you know, in our professional learning network. It helps us stretch who we are and what we know and what we do. Well, thank you for letting me come on. It's been a dream for a while. I'm like, I got to get on that podcast somehow. <laughs> you're on, Carol, you're on. <laughs> and it was awesome. And thank you so much for taking the time. So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Mado, joined by Chris Bouquet and Cherie Dodge-Chin. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>